Thank you for that uh, singing choir. You know, I just had my eyes worked on this week, and now I'm seeing things I've never seen before. And the choir looks a lot younger than they used to. It's just amazing. See, it was just my eyes the whole time. That's what it was. I, I am a, just slightly challenged today in the fact that uh, my prescriptions don't match. And uh, like those fish, that both eyes can go different directions. It's, it's kind of an odd feeling. I do have my eye patch. If I go crazy, I'll pop it on. I mean, because uh, I've been wearing it this week, and if you see me one moment, it's over this eye. And then the next moment is over this eye. And it all depends on what I'm doing. Um, what's amazing is I can read with my repaired eye. And I haven't ever read before without glasses or contacts. Uh, I was in them before I ever learned how to read. And so the very next day after the surgery, I was reading. And I could read right now. And I think, amazing. That really is. Now, there's still some work. It's kind of fuzzy. And they're working on that. But... Um, it, it, I hope it doesn't alter what we're about to do here this morning. Dale Sharkey up there, where'd he go? He didn't come today. We found him in the restaurant yesterday. We were eating, and Dale was sitting over there. And he came up, and I was wearing my eye patch the whole time, and he said, does that mean you get to preach half the time tomorrow? Um, I said, no, I just go slower. That's, a, that's what comes of that. But... Uh, Anyway, Dale, Dale, it was good to see him. We got to call him and tell him to get over here. He can listen to these things. So, anyway, thank you for the prayers this week. I think the Lord has uh, done a great thing. And uh, as I go through this process, it's fascinating to me. Uh, and so, let's see what we could do. We're in Jude. You know, I realized that my Bible almost met the weight limits I'm allowed to carry. It's a heavy one, by the way. And I said, boy, I'm glad I could get that up here. Um, But here in Jude, this is a heavy book. And it's a rich book, and it's an important book for us. We're in verse number four, and we're talking about the grace of our God and what certain people do to it. And it's a warning passage. And we're concerned about this especially Because it's not what's going on out in the world. It's what's going on within the church. And that's what Jude's warning is all about. He said certain people, verse 4, have crept in, crept into the church. They've crept in among us as believers. As Jude is writing it, it was fresh in his day in the 70s or 60s AD. And it's very fresh in our day too. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I told you last week that I had thought through, and there was a two-part sermon in that last phrase, is uh, the grace of our God, turning the grace of our God into licentiousness and denying our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, and then I broke it in half of that, and now I break it into the second half again, because uh, we're still dealing with the grace of our God and what they have done to it. And I'm concerned about that especially because 
your perspective on God's grace is very important. It's very important. Um, there's a lady that you have never met. You will when you get to heaven someday. Her name is Anne Vickeroy. She was uh, up around 90 years old when I started ministry 30 years ago. So I'm assuming she's in heaven now. She was in our church in Birmingham, Alabama. And she set an example for me that I can never forget. And that is, every time you brought up the cross, she started to weep. She had such a sensitive heart to what the Lord had done for her that you bring up the cross and she wept. And I thought, oh, if only, if only we in the church would have a heart like that, that you talk about God's grace and you can't help but well up with tears. Remember, folks, we call it a free gift, but it wasn't free in the first place. What it costs our Savior is incredible. And if you need a good study on the crucifixion of Christ, there's so many places you could go in Scripture. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. Spend any time you want in the Gospels. Usually within the last three or four chapters, it starts talking about the suffering of Christ on your behalf. And it ought to bring a tear to your eye. And it ought to bring joy to your heart. And it ought to bring a hallelujah, like the kids sang. And you might break out with the wonderful grace of Jesus. But I don't understand for my life why anyone would turn that into something sinful. And that's what Jude is talking about. Those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. That stuns me that anyone would do that to God's grace. They obviously don't know what it is to use it in such a fashion. That's where we were last week. We spent a little bit of time on that because that is a danger, folks, today. It's a danger in the church today. It has been warned to us that that will come about in the end times. And guess where we are? We're in those days. And I want you to be able to mark these people. I want you to know what you're looking at. And I want you to realize they're taking the beautiful words that we hold to, like grace and Lord, and they're using them as weapons, and they're using them for filthy things, and I don't understand it. But I do see that they need to be marked. God already marked them. You see verse 4, what did he already do? He marked them out for condemnation. And if God's against it, shouldn't we be? I think so. We ought to hear the warning of what Jude is trying to show us here. So that's my concern, and that's why I bring it to you today, because this is not old news. It's something from the way past. We've already gotten past it. We're okay now. That's not the case. This is serious. And I don't want it to affect our hearts and our lives. In verse number 17, I take you back over there. We're in a couple of places bouncing back and forth in the text. But in verse 17... But you, beloved, ought to remember the words which were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. And look at verse 19, if you want to know what they do. These are telltale signs. They are the ones who cause divisions. Mark that. That's happening today. 
They are worldly-minded, and they are devoid of the Spirit. Wow. Do you know what also they do? They tear up churches. They tear them up. There's a warning that Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm just going to read this to you too, because I enjoy reading now. Uh, 2 Timothy. You can go over there too if you want to read it. It's fun. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Notice what's happening here is, as Paul warns Timothy about the last days. But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self. Have you ever noticed that? Lovers of money. Boastful. Arrogant. Revilers. Disobedient to parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Unloving. Irreconcilable. Malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And you say, well, I'm glad they're not in the church. Folks, these are in the church. It says they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And what are you to do in verse 5? Avoid them. Have nothing to do with men such as these. Why? Because look what they do. They, they, from among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. They're always learning, and they never come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind... Rejected in regards to the faith. Wow. Those words sizzle. That's God's warning. And we ought to take it seriously. Do you know that Jesus, before he died, he prayed for you? Do you know that? In John chapter 17, there is an absolutely beautiful prayer. This was not prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. More than likely it was prayed as Jesus was walking along the, the paths in the Kidron Valley toward the Garden. Because chapter 18 says he then entered the Garden. So chapter 17 was prior to that. They'd already left the upper room. It was dark. They're walking along the path of the Kidron Valley. Maybe they have some lanterns with them, some torches and such. And, and they're talking about the vine and the branches. And they're talking about the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of great passages in John 14, 15, 16. All these great places to go and study. And chapter 17, Jesus just starts to pray. And I picture him doing this as they're walking along. It just flows right into the conversation because he's just talking about the father and the and what was about to happen. And suddenly he just starts talking to his father. And in his prayer, he prays for three primary things. And we sometimes think, well, he should have prayed for himself. He's about to be crucified. Most of us, before we go into something tough, we pray a lot for ourselves, don't we? He did not pray for himself to endure the cross to handle the shame or the pain or anything of that nature. He prayed for himself in verse 5 that he would 
have that glory again that he had with his father. That was his request for himself. Father, he says, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had before the world was. So he prayed that way, all the way down to verse 8. There's other things in there, but verse number 9, he starts to pray for his disciples who are walking there along him, as I picture it. And as they're walking along, he says, Father, there's two things I really want for my followers here. He says, first of all, keep them. Keep them in your name. They're going to be among very wicked things on this earth. And he says in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And then when you get down two more verses, verse 17, his second prayer for them was to be sanctified. That means set apart. And he says, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart from everything else and everybody else. Put them in the truth. Set them apart for the truth. Put them there. Put them there. And that was his prayer for his disciples. And then when you get down to verse number 20 and toward the end of the chapter, he starts praying for you and me. You and me who have become believers because of the words of the apostles, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's talking about future believers. And this is what he prays. You ready? Verse 23. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity. In unity. So that the world may know that you sent me. Would you consider that to be important? That the world knows that the Father sent the Son? Is that significant to you? That, that the world needs to see that? Yes. Guess how the Lord prayed that prayer? He said, when my church is unified, then the world then sees you and me, Father. That the world may understand you and me, Father, and what I've done, Father, because the church is unified. What do you think Jude is most concerned about here? Division destroys testimony. When we have distorted grace, that beautiful thing, and believe it or not, Jude says the second thing they distort is the Lord. The identity of the Lord. Distort both of those and then parade around the world like we know the truth. That's against the Lord's prayer on behalf of us. He prayed that we would know the truth. Yes. No, he prayed that we would be unified. Satan has attempted for a lot of years to divide, and he's good at it. And don't be surprised if he's working on the inside out now. He's dividing according to beautiful words. That's my concern for you this morning as we're on this topic. It's not easy, but that's what mockers do. And that's what Jude has shown us. We're going to see it you know, in black and white <coughs> as we go through all this. But what we're looking at is something that is true. I'm not creating fairy tales here. It's just the reality of it all. Mockers will employ themselves in the church. They will. We got to know how to spot them and mark them out 
And as Timothy was warned, and avoid. Avoid them. You ready? That's preliminary stuff. All right? We're talking about the deceit of grace. That's what they're doing. They're using grace in such a, a horrifying way. Grace is a weapon, and yet grace is allowing them to do filthy things. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. They turn it into licentiousness. We've gone through a lot of notes on this, and I've spent some time last week describing that. I said I wanted to finish these notes, so we did page 7, and we did page 8. And here we talk about more issues of licentiousness. I'm not going to define all that for you once again and uh, work that out. It's a gross topic, and I don't like it. I don't want to go down that road week after week. I want to talk about the beautiful thing grace is and how wonderful it is to me that it has saved my life because Christ died on my behalf. I love the fact that that was our song this morning, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. It is wonderful. Like I said, I don't understand men who misuse it. But verse 12, let's go jumping right to verse 12. And tell you about the dangers of these men. These mockers in among you that do these things. It says, they are men who are hidden wreaths in your love feast. And they feast with you without fear. There's evidence that they're in with you. They're at your potluck dinners. They're sharing in your communion service. That's what the love feast was. There's a communion service that worked its way into a potluck service. And there was a lot of eating. And they're there. That's what Jude says. They're in your love feast. And they're feasting with you. They're at your table. They're laughing at your jokes. They're smiling. They ask about your grandkids. You say, pretty nice people. Says, so, do you know what's underneath the water? Do you know what danger lurks? When these people fellowship with you, if we ignore who they are, they will tear us up every time. A reef under the water. You know what that does to a ship? When it's going through there and it does not see it and it hits it at full speed, what becomes of the bottom of the ship? It gets ripped off and the ship goes down. They never saw it coming. They never saw it coming. That's a danger. Wouldn't you agree? If we're not mindful, you know, there are people who go out of their way to chart these things. They've made maps for years and years and years. If you're going through a channel, you're going down a river, you're going around the coast of an island or a a continent or something, they mark where the reefs are for a reason. So that those pilots of old could maneuver their boats. And that's why they go in and out and in and out and in and out. And you think, what's wrong with that pilot? Well, he knows where the reefs are. And he's avoiding them. Jude is saying, this is your chart of where the reefs are. These people, you've got to be able to spot them. Or else they're tearing up. They're in your fellowship meals. That's where they're sitting. They're in among you. And they're doing it without fear. 
their wild waves of the sea, verse 13 says. They're casting up their own shame like foam. Foam. Back in the uh, 70s, I grew up right on the shores, or close to the shores, within a mile of Lake Michigan in Indiana, right off Chicago up above, and we're just right across the Indiana border there in a town called Portage. And uh, there was problems in those days, because Gary, Indiana is known as the steel uh, capital, perhaps, of the world. They, they had steel mills all the way up along the shore. They used the water for all kinds of purposes there. But uh, what they put back into the water in the 1970s was yellow. I'm not sure what that was. But the fish didn't like it. The fish died. And they were washed up on the shore. And the beaches that we played on were full of dead fish. You could not take a step without stepping on a fish that had washed up on the shore. And of course, we were just young boys, so we built sandcastles with little fish heads sticking out the sides. What else do you do when you got so many dead fish? You could play with them, right? I, I just think of this picture when I think of this word. Nobody likes this picture. Their shame is just slapping against the shore. It's bubbling up. It's visible in every way. And nobody's responding to it. Jesus says, what, 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 church, wake up! Do you see what's happening in among you? The shame of these people. They're living licentiously. And everyone knows it. You say, is that possible? Do you know what the Corinthians would have done? They would have applauded. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a man in sin. And they thought it was great. Do you think people can actually do that with God's grace? Oh, it's all under the blood. It doesn't matter anyway, right? Well, they must not know the Savior who died for them. They can't. If they knew that price tag, they shouldn't have acted that way. Doesn't break your heart to sin. Do you ever stop to think that every time you sin, Jesus paid for that with his life? All of them? Or just some of them? Only the big ones? How much of the sin did he carry upon him? All of it. Does it ever stop you in your tracks and say, he died for that. Why should I do that anymore? Why should I do that anymore? That's a contrast I'm setting before you. Is those who are uh, alarmed at the cost of grace and those who are abusing it for their own ungodliness. Verse 15 says, that the Lord will execute judgment upon all and convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And they are grumblers and they're fault finders, and they follow after their own lust. And in verse 18, he says it again. Mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Folks, it's not hard. But if you go through the New Testament and you mark the descriptions in every place it talks about a false teacher, 
it's usually their behavior that stands out front. And guess what's usually the first item of that list? Their ungodly immorality. It's almost, almost every single time the most common character trait of a false teacher is ungodly, lustful desire and action. And you know what? It still plays out that way, doesn't it? It's still that way. And yet they twist it all around and they say they're just enjoying the grace of God. That's what they do. That's the deceit of grace. I want you just to to understand as we've been walking through this and looking especially at verse number 4 here. You can evaluate their doctrinal statement if you want to. But you will say, ah, they're just like us. Because that's their doctrinal statement. They believe in grace. Wonderful. But grace is only a word to them. It's only a word to them. It reminds me how Jesus had to deal when he talked to the Jewish crowds about the Pharisees. And the scribes, (coughs) he would instruct them not to be like a Pharisee, right? Don't be like them. Don't be like them. Don't be like them. You ought to know them by now. You've read it. You've seen it many times in Scripture. But Matthew 7, where Jesus is speaking, makes it abundantly clear. Verse 15 (coughs) through verse number 20. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. That's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? It's pretty easy. If you go to an apple tree, what do you expect? Apples. I have a friend. I tell you not a lie. I'm honest with you. His apple tree grew grapes. Why? Because he planted a grapevine underneath the apple tree. (laughs) And when he picked grapes, he used an extension ladder. Because it was 15 to 20 feet up in the air. And there were grapes all over his apple tree. It was the coolest sight I'd ever seen. (laughs) So what are we picking today? Apples or grapes? But it was kind of fun. But we knew that it was just the vine that had clung to the tree and climbed up it. Look carefully at the trunk. There you'll find the false teacher obvious too. He could put on quite a show. But the fruit and the trunk don't match. It's important. A bad tree does not produce good fruit. He's just making a simple illustration to those who understood trees. The Jews needed this instruction. The false prophets were among them. They were the Pharisee who they looked up to. 
They were the priest and the scribe who were supposed to be men who were godly and led them into the ways that were right. And Jesus condemned them over and over and over and over again. Is that because Jesus was in a bad mood? No. Because he knew the dangers of these people who parade around as sheep when they're nothing but wolves. That's our problem, folks. Go to Second Peter with me for a minute. It's not far from Jude. Just start backing up a little bit. Second Peter chapter 2. He's giving you this illustration. He says, it used to be this way in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people. And then he says, now take that and then talk about the present. Just as there also will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow. Notice the character traits. Their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. No doubt. We need to be vigilant, don't we? You start reading that and you say, Woo, what do we do? What do we do? They misuse our word grace. They carry around our doctrinal statement. They wear what we wear. They sit in our building. They eat our meals. They fellowship with us. They commune with us at the communion table. They sing our songs. What are we going to do? What are we called to do? Go back to Jude. And as I've showed you before, when you head to verse number 20, this is what you're called to do. I want to take the time, especially right now, to bring this out. What we are to do is exactly the thing we were told to do in the first place. Build yourself up in God's faith. Has that ever changed? No. Do you think God's going to say, plan to? That didn't work. No. He stays with the same program, folks. The same thing he told the first century church to do, he tells this church to do. Same thing. Build yourself up in the holy faith. Build yourself up in the holy faith. He didn't change that. What if you have to help your brother or sister who's in trouble, as the rest of the chapter does? Guess what you need to do? Build yourself up in the holy faith. What about dealing with these kind of people, these ungodly people that sneak in and take control of our fellowship? What are we to do? Build yourself up in the holy faith. There's not a different program for situations. You say, but that's a different situation. Well, it's the same, same thing you're called to. You're called to do that for your sake, so that you don't fall to false teaching. You're called to do that for the sake of your weaker brother or sister who is in danger of falling, and they need somebody stable to help them up. You need that when false teachers get in so that you don't fall for what they're giving you. You need to build yourself up in the most holy faith. You, beloved, verse 20, build yourselves up 
on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourself in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Just take a minute with me. I'm going to bring this up every single week, but I think maybe I need to define it a little bit better. There are four things to observe in verse 20 and 21. Four things to observe. Three of them are descriptions of who we ought to be. One of them is a command. Right? One's a command. Three of them are descriptions. Let's start with the descriptions. We call them participles in the Greek. Active descriptions. And what are they? Verse 20. Ones who are constantly building themselves up. Now, I added a word, but I, that was to give you the aspect of the verb, the participle. Constantly, constantly, constantly. What does that mean to you? All the time, right? When do you take a break? Don't. When does danger say, hey, I won't come today? When does say, sin take a vacation? Satan's just going to stop? Ah, let's leave him alone. No. Constantly building yourselves up. Constant, he's, that's a descriptive term. This is what's really cool. It's a descriptive term, and so I have to ask, does it describe us? Or is he assuming too much? He hasn't even given the command yet. He's just saying, but you, brethren, who are constantly building yourselves up. Do you feel guilty when somebody says such a thing to you? Like, if you only knew, I really haven't spent much time on this point. Folks, get started if you haven't. Do it now. And you may say, well, Pastor, that's hard work. Yes, it's hard work. But you know why I want you to do it now? It's not just for you. It's for everybody in this room. Because if all of us are building ourselves up in the faith like we should, what's the likelihood that some false teacher is going to get the advantage on any of us? Do it for everybody else in this room. Build yourselves up in the faith. Do it. It's not a single person sport. It's called of all of us to mature to the image of Christ. Is that true? All of us. All of us. All of us. Ephesians 4 will tell you that. Every single one of us is to mature into the image of Christ. And so that's the first descriptive phrase here. And that's why I keep bringing it back to you. Are we doing this? And if we're not, let's get back to it. Because that's our description. The second thing is in verse 20 as well. Ones who are constantly praying in the Spirit. Yes, constantly is in that too. And then again, I have a question. Do you like this one? You know what it is. Are you? Is this your description? It ought to be. Because that's the person who is in touch with their Heavenly Father. Praying, praying, praying. What do you do when you have trouble? Do you not call the prayer chain? Why? Because you want your brothers and sisters to be praying with you about this problem. Do you think false teaching is a problem? It should be serious enough that we are praying. 
And praying, and praying, and praying, and praying. You owe that to your brothers and sisters again. Not one of us should sit back and say, oh, that's for somebody else. That's for all of us to do. And it's a description that we all should have. And that's what he used again. And I say, man, it makes me feel real small when I read those words and realize what they're saying to me. He's saying, oh, you're one of those who constantly prays in the Spirit. I say, oh, well, if that's the way you feel, get started. Get started. Live up to your description. I realize that these descriptions are bigger than who we really are. I realize the conviction that Jude has just placed upon us as a church. But we need to live up to our calling. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Isn't that our call? If that's what we're supposed to be, let's be it. Verse number 21 adds the third description phrase. Ones who are constantly waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ into eternal life. You have one eye on heaven, and you can't wait for him to come. You can't wait. Today I could put one eye one place and one eye the other place. Get away with that. We're supposed to always be waiting for our Savior. Living, living every day as if today is the day he comes. The Lord asked a simple question to his disciples, and he asked them, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I don't want to be characterized as faithless, do you? I don't want to be in that lump of people who, who just ignore the fact that he's coming again. You know, coming again is not just an eschatology issue. It is a practical issue in the Christian life. It ought to make us walk godly because we know Jesus is coming. Those who know these things walk that way. Those are descriptive terms. And if we're not living up to those, let's get at it. Because those are what we need to do living in an ungodly world where we're challenged personally, where our brothers and sisters are challenged, and where the church is challenged. There's a lot of ungodliness out there. And we need to start marking these things for ourselves. There's a command that goes with it. And it's 12 o'clock. I can see that clock now. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, this is going to be part three. It's just the way it is. There's still two pages of notes. I hardly got there. I think we have enough to start with, don't you? we got some work to do. We've got some work to do. We're called to something so important. Let's not, let's not brush this one off as sermon done. Let's move on. All right? Take it to heart. Take it to heart. Take these descriptions and set it next to your life. Say, Lord, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Heavenly Father, we all stand before you thankful for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the fact that you look down upon us and you see how we fall short. And yet you love us so much that you gave your son for us. That even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you're working in these lives of ours 
and you're building within us the image of Christ, that we should be like him, that we should think like him and act like him and walk in his steps. And someday we shall be like him and shall see him as he is. Lord, there's a time like now when we must examine our own hearts and see what we are. What we are as believers. What we are as a church. What we are in light of your word and the descriptions you have for the godly man and woman who is strong in the midst of ungodly days. And Lord, if we're falling far short of that, would you please work in our hearts. Convict us. Correct us. Encourage us. But bring us further down this road where we're different. We're different and growing. Give us that ambition, that desire, that zeal for righteousness. Help us to shine brighter as a light in a dark world. But Lord, just make us more like Christ. And I think all these things will happen. I just pray that each of us are willing participants in the process. So check our hearts today, we pray, Lord, as we have this in front of us. Do your work, for we know it's always wonderful, and we want to be part of it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.